It is a pleasure to see all of you this morning. I am uh, excited. Man, how about the worship team this morning? I thought that was fantastic. Come on. Like we were, we were like pushing. We were pushing in the set this morning. That was great. I loved it. Um, well done. You've probably noticed that uh, every Sunday morning, we usually try to enter into our worship set by reading from what called the lectionary. How many of you are familiar with the daily lectionary? Or maybe you grew up in churches that use the, the lectionary. Um, I actually have come to deeply love the lectionary. Uh, basically, here, here's kind of the gist of the lectionary. It walks through the scriptures over the course of three years. Your A, B, and C. And every day there's usually an Old Testament prophet, there's a psalm, there's a New Testament, and usually a gospel reading. And it's so helpful, I think, in helping get through the entirety of the scriptures and the narrative of the scriptures. And so it's a great way for us to partner with the church across the world by reading what a lot of churches are also reading and teaching from on Sunday morning. And so that's one of the reasons why we do that. Um, I'm also looking forward to tacos. I love tacos. Who doesn't like tacos? And uh, I'm going to tell you what, the ladies that were here working to put that room together, the community room, I just want you guys to know, okay, we have reimagined a fellowship hall. I just want you guys to have that awareness this morning. They've done a killer job. There's even like centerpieces with fresh flowers from Blooms and Branches. Shout out to Cody and Angie. Hello. Come on. This is not an endorsement deal, I promise. Like, that's totally free, okay? But it's awesome. I'm looking forward to hanging out, getting to know you guys, and spending time together. I think eating is a practice that we need to embrace more as the people of God. Um, I'm also thrilled that we're done with Romans. I'll be honest. I am so happy that we made it through Romans. It was 11 weeks of trudging through one of the most complex and dense books of the entire library of Scripture. Did you guys enjoy Romans, or did you get to a point where you're like, I am, I am ready to be done with Paul? He's talking about Jesus, right? Um, but it was, it was fun. It was almost three months of Romans, but I really enjoyed it. And now we move into a more practical down-to-earth, pragmatic teaching series over the next few weeks. That being said, change is inevitable. Is it not? Change is a part of life. It is all around us. Seasons change. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, we will officially move into fall. The leaves will change from a green color to shades of orange and yellow and red. And many people will take drives down the Blue Ridge Parkway to see the change. It's inevitable. We change jobs throughout our life. We change houses throughout our life. We change schools. We are changed by both loss and by gain. Many of you over the last year, you've lost something or someone that has caused great pain and trial in your life. You've also probably gained some things, things to celebrate, things that are blessings. These are all different types of changes. However, we must recognize that one of the most fundamental aspects of change is our biological development as human beings. I actually want you to think about um, the summer where you feel like you changed the most. 
All of us had a summer, right? Did we not? We went from one uh, year in school to the next year in school, and over summer, something happened. You came back, you looked different, you might have grown a couple of inches. Is this anybody? Like, I went through a phase. I went through, I had bad knees in like sixth grade. I was growing fast as like a 12-year-old. I, sl- I, I slimmed down a little bit, praise God. Although that's come back, I don't understand. Um, but how about you? When, when did you feel like you, ch- maybe you got contacts? Thank you for contacts in middle school, high school, right? I've been rocking glasses the whole time. But some people are like, I, don't, I have contacts now. You're not going to make fun of me, okay? Um, or... Maybe you had like a crush or something because, you know, the, the year before they were just a friend and they come back over the summer and you're like, yo, what happened? You grew up quick, girl. <laughs> or like the kid, the boy that always got picked on was like 5'1 and scrawny. Now he's like 5'9 and pretty stout. And you're like, what happened to you? Wow. Biological change is inevitable. Sometimes it happens quickly. Sometimes it happens over a long period of time. As you know, we have a little, almost one-year-old girl named Selah. And Selah is a collision of both joy and spice. She is uh, sweet and sour all together in one little body. And I have become fascinated with how she has changed over the last year. She turns a year next month. I've seen her two little on her bottom gum, in her bottom gums. It was just one little snaggle tooth. Now she's got a little nub right beside of the bigger one. Her go from not being able to really move much to actually begin to crawl. To now she can actually stand up. To now if you say, hey, Selah, and you start waving your hands, she'll probably give you the grandma wave like this. This is called the grandma wave. You just got to dangle your hand, okay? I've also I've seen her move to drinking on her own. Like you actually use Now she's not the best at it, but she can use a sippy cup. To also now she's begun to learn how to cock an attitude. And what we call fake cry. And you parents know what I'm talking about, where they like squint their eyes and make noises, but there are no tears. And I'm like, you're not pulling a fast one on me, girl. Your little bald head, there's no way. (laughs) Like parents, do you ever start talking trash to you? Honestly, they don't understand you. You just start talking trash. You're like, they're not going to remember this. I'm just going to talk trash to you. (laughs) What? Bald (laughs) Come catch me. You can't. You know, like we... I don't know. Maybe I'm just like depraved or something. I don't know. I do this with my daughter. Um, I need Jesus. And so anyway, biological development is how we probably most clearly see change throughout our life. And though Selah is changing, she may not know cognitively how rapidly she is changing. But for us, the older we become, Aspects of our lives where we notice drastic change. If I talked to you and asked you about your life's development, you would be able to share aspects of change you've gone through, things that you intentionally chose and things that you did not intentionally choose. So again, as I have said, move into this teaching series, it's important to realize that whether you are curious about the way of Jesus 
or you're a devoted follower of Jesus, or you're just here because a friend invited you, I want you to know as a human being, change is a part of life. We all go through it. And just as natural as biological change is, the same is to be said of our discipleship to Jesus. It's a part of the process. Nothing that we can do to avoid biological change. And inevitably, if we walk with Jesus, we will also experience that sort of change as well. In fact, discipleship to Jesus, this is important. Discipleship to Jesus is an invitation to change. It's an invitation to transformation. Or a process often referred to as spiritual formation. And Jesus extends this invitation to us. Jesus is not just a polarizing figure in history who has done great things. That is true. But he is someone who has invited all of us into a process of change and transformation. We become students of Rabbi Jesus and he teaches us. He trains us how to live into the good life through his spirit. The way in which Jesus invites us into is the way of the good life. And he teaches us how to live into it through his spirit. He changes how we think about life and reality and how we are to live the embodied human experience. We see this most clearly in Matthew chapter 4. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4 really quickly in the scriptures, a text that we all know and have all read at some point. And if you're new to it, here is the invitation. This is the invitation to you. This is the invitation to me. It's the invitation to all of us. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 20. I'm just going to read 18 through 20. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Here's the invitation. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, a more clear translation, I think, is I will make you fishers of men. Because the Greek word here is poeo, and it means to make or to do or to put into practice. And he invites these random fishermen on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to come follow him and enter into a journey where he will make them into fishers of men. At once, they left their nets And followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Discipleship to Jesus is an invitation extended to you and I to change, to enter into the process of transformation, gaining a new paradigm of reality, and living in a way that reflects Jesus. However, The great challenge arises when we aren't sure what change is supposed to look like. 
or simply what it is that we are after as human beings, what it is that we are in pursuit of. Even though, as we have just discovered, humans aren't static creatures. We don't just stay the same. Some of us are grateful for that. Because I remember what I was like when I was 13 years old. And I'm glad I'm not that anymore. I'm glad I don't look like that anymore as well. We're not static creatures. We are dynamic beings. So it's not just that we are dynamic creatures biologically, but we're not dynamic psychologically, not so, or we're not static dyna- uh, psychologically, socially, or spiritually. We are dynamic creatures. We don't just stay the same. We change over time, and we move towards something. The philosopher James K.A. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, says to be human is to be on the move, pursuing something after something, We are like existential sharks. We have to move to live. All humans, all of us, whether you're new to the way of Jesus or not, you are in pursuit of something. There is a vision of the good life that has been given to you, maybe passed down through culture or through tradition or whatever it may be, and you are living into that reality, believing that it's to produce the good life. So all of us, whether we are in discipleship to Jesus or we're new to this whole Jesus thing, we are in this process or we are on the move in pursuit of some sort of telos, some sort of end goal, this vision of the good life. And whatever that vision is, is changing and forming us. If it's a vision of success, if it's a vision of pleasure, if it's a vision of family, Whatever that vision is, if it's a vision of being a quote-unquote good person, whatever that vision is, if it's the way of Jesus, we are living into that vision, and that vision is what's changing how we live now. Our understanding of the future shapes or should shape and does shape, whether you know it or not, how we live, behave, and think right now. We're all in the pursuit of some sort of telos. And that telos, that vision is changing us. It's forming us now. And as humans get toward the end of their life, I've come to realize this by talking to many, I think humans begin to realize that this pursuit isn't so much about the pursuit of consumption, whether through material things or through pleasure-seeking. I've never really talked to a person who is older in the latter stages of their life. They're all about the things that they have bought over their life. Very rarely is it about material consumption and goods. Nor is it just about pleasure-seeking. Well, I did all these fun things through life or had all these experiences where it felt like these little highs all throughout life. In fact, it actually seems, even though society tries to sell us on this vision being the pursuit of material things or pleasure-seeking, but at the end of a person's life, it's, also, it's actually about the pursuit of becoming a certain type of person. Because people, as you know, as they get older, they become even more reflective, do they not? You probably have grandparents. All they want to do is reflect. Why is that? Because they finally come to realize that the journey in life isn't about consumption or even just pleasure-seeking, but the person that they have become or not become.
We have to be able to recognize that in society, the vision given to us is the pursuit of consumption as well as the pursuit of pleasure-seeking. But it seems as though, experientially, it's actually more so about the person that we are becoming. Robert Mulholland, who was a professor of spiritual formation at Asbury Seminary for a long time. In fact, I think Josh had a class with Dr. Mulholland. You have to talk to Josh about uh, Robert Mulholland at some point. He says this in his seminal book, An Invitation to a Journey. Everyone is in a process of spiritual formation. We are being shaped into either the wholeness of the image of Christ or a horribly destructive caricature of that image. There is not one of us that's not in the process of spiritual formation. All of us are. We all are worshipers at our core. Why? Because we love. We are people of desire. And we all are being shaped by the thing that we ultimately desire, whether it's producing the good life or not. We all are in the process of spiritual formation and all are being shaped into the wholeness of the image of Christ or a horribly destructive caricature of that image. And to that end, the most fundamental question as we enter into this journey, this vision series, moving into this next season of life as a community, questions that we must ask ourselves, especially as we are entering into this teaching series, are these three questions. What type of person do I want to become? Type of person do I want to become? Now, the question you ask as a child is, or people ask you, who do you want to be when you grow up? Well, really what they're asking is, what do you want to do? Because you say things like, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a musician. I want to be a basketball player. I want to be a farmer. I don't know. I want to be a farmer as a kid. Can you believe I wanted to be a farmer as a seven-year-old? I've really gone through a process of change. Totally. But the question we have to ask is, what type of person do I want to become? Because guess what? You could become a doctor. You could become a teacher. But have you become the essence of what you ultimately desired internally? Or have you just achieved some sort of career path? So what type of person do I want to become? The second question is, am I moving towards that? Very simple. Am I moving towards that? And then the third question is, how do I know if I'm moving towards that or not? How do I know if I'm moving towards this vision of becoming this person? What are the markers? So those are three questions. What type of person do I want to become? Am I moving towards that? And then how do I know? How do you know? And Jesus recognizes this basic fact of humans being dynamic creatures who change. He recognizes this. That we are en route to some ultimate end. Jesus is a great philosopher. He he never really gets put into philosophical categories, but he's probably the greatest philosopher that's ever lived. And he understands this dynamic about being human. And because this is so, as well as the fact that he has come to ultimately change, the fact that he has come as a rabbi, as a teacher, means that he wants to change our understanding about reality, change our vision of what it means to live as a human. And he does this, By extending an invitation to a journey, by saying, come, follow me. This assumes a journey. He ends up saying eventually in the Sermon on the Mount, I am the, you know, he says that the road is narrow, 
right? The way is narrow that leads to life, and the road that is wide leads to destruction. In other words, there is this way or this road, or the Greek word is hados, that we are to enter into, this path. He has invited us into a journey by saying, come, follow me. He doesn't just show up and start lecturing, and that's all he does. As some great teacher, have some YouTube channel. He's not just an influencer. He invites a couple of guys on the Sea of Galilee into a journey. And he says that he will make them fishers of men. Another word for make could be craft or shape or form or build. Now remember, Jesus was also a what? Carpenter. Jesus was a builder. So Jesus comes as builder and as teacher, meaning he has a vision for the good life, and he also wants to, I believe, form us and shape us into that vision. Our response is, do we trust him in that vision, or do we just simply trust ourselves? That is the question that you have to ask. But he's invited us into a journey by saying, come follow me. He has invited us into a journey of transformation and change to follow a way of life as well as a way through life. Keep that in mind. He's invited us to follow a way of life as well as a way through life, a certain type of journey of becoming. The whole process of formation, friends, is a journey of becoming. It's a process of becoming. And here's the thing. We can ask ourselves, who am I becoming up to a certain point? Because there comes a day where you wake up and you go, This is who I have become. If you're in your 20s, your 30s, your teens, you're like, yeah, I can ask them, who am I becoming? But when you get into the latter part of your life, what some refer to as the second mountain, you get past 45, 50, you're like, this is who I have become. This is who I have become. So we have to ask this question of who Am I becoming, recognizing that Jesus has invited us into a journey of transformation change? He hasn't just come that you might go to heaven when you die. He's come to change you so that you might live into eternal life and the abundance of life now. Eternal life means eternal life, which means now. And to live into that. But towards what? What journey, like, are we moving, like, what in this journey are we moving towards? What type of person are we becoming? That's the question, right? Who am I becoming? So what type of person are we becoming, or are we meant to become as individuals? Well, the writers of the New Testament present this comparison within formation to our biological formation and change as humans. Look at a couple of these verses as parallels in terms of our formation as followers and our formation biologically as human beings. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became, key word, became, a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Here we see fathers, we see um, young men, we see dear children. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Notice the words here. Grow up in your salvation. So we see it all through the New Testament, three different writers speaking about this process of change and comparing it to our biological development as human beings. The journey that we embark on as disciples of Jesus does, in fact, mimic the development from childhood to adulthood. It parallels that same trajectory. More specifically, the movement is toward maturity or mature adulthood. That is the ultimate end. That is the goal. That is the telos, to move toward maturity. Colossians 1, 28, Paul says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching or training everyone with all wisdom so that... That's a conjunction, okay? So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Not partially, not somewhat fully mature. Paul is saying we are going all over the Middle East, all over Asia Minor, so that through our teaching and training, we can present everyone fully mature. And everyone means everyone, not just some of us, not just myself, not just Jordan, not just those in the worship team, every one of you. God's desire is to present you as fully mature and that you change. Hebrews verse 6, 1 says this, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. What does this assume? This assumes that though you have teachings about Christ stored up in your mind, that does not mean you've moved on towards maturity. You can have information and not have moved into maturation or maturity, which we'll talk about all through this teaching series. But the goal, friends, all of us, the goal is that we move on to maturity, complete maturity to mature adulthood. And the Greek word for mature and maturity comes from the same group of words as telos, or the goal, the end goal. Other New Testament words that are used for telos are complete, to be made complete, or whole, to be made whole, or another word that might get us a little antsy is perfect. Does that terrify you a little bit? Were you told growing up in the church that your end goal is perfection? Read the Bible. It's in there. Now we can wrestle with what that actually means. But telos is this idea of wholeness, maturity, or even perfection. To be perfected. It's all in the New Testament. So Jesus is inviting us on a journey towards maturity. A maturity that reflects ultimately more of his character in us and through us, in heart, mind, and behavior over time, resulting in becoming a people of holy love. 
keep in mind, the 1 Corinthians 13 passage that I just referenced a second ago is in what's referred to as the love chapter. And some of you guys always hear the love chapter at weddings, and that's okay. It's a little out of context, in my opinion. But really, the idea is that all of us are to be walking towards love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy, does not boast. That's not just a thing that married folks have to, you know, reconcile. <laughs> all of us as followers of Jesus are to walk in this posture of love. And it's in that chapter he's talking about maturity. So move in a direction of becoming a people of holy love. Holy love. Now, Hollywood and literature has made us utterly obsessed with the human journey. Anytime someone talks about quote-unquote character development, they are referring to the character's journey throughout a book, throughout a television series, throughout a movie. They are referring to the character's journey of becoming. So I want you right now to think about your favorite movie or book where there is a central character heading off on some journey. Matter of fact, just for like the next 30 seconds, talk to your neighbor about it in all honesty. Talk to them. Let them know the movie or the book. Go for it. 30 seconds. What's the book or the movie? have a little dialogue back and forth, a little interaction to keep you awake this morning since it's gray and rainy outside. Um, what were some of your answers? Can you just shout it out? Movies or books? Lord of the Rings. The ultimate human journey. I watched last week the clip of Frodo Baggins leaving the, what is it, the Shire and moving on into his journey. I about said the shrine. That's not it. The Shire. Frodo Baggins goes on this journey. A perfect example. What else? Harry Potter. Harry Potter. You like that? That's free. That's free. Harry Potter. Okay. What else? Remember the Titans. Oh, yes. A journey of a team, really. And even two individuals, more specifically. I love it. The scene of um, Julius and Gary Bertier in the hospital at the end. I'm melting. Literally, waterworks, okay? Um, we have been obsessed, have we not, with, with the journey, with humans going through some sort of development. Uh, how about Shrek? Anybody thought about Shrek? Come on. It's a movie about a journey. Love some Shrek, right? How about a 90s classic, Homeward Bound? Does anybody remember Homeward Bound? Like real animals that were talking. This is weird. <laughs> Hollywood literally are obsessed with some sort of journey. In Christian literature, 
The 17th century classic by John Bunyan called The Pilgrim's Progress is nothing but a novel about a character's journey as a believer. No matter how cheesy it is. And I'll be honest, Pilgrim's Progress is a little cheesy. However, think about when it was written, give the man some grace. But I will say, it is the second best-selling novel of all time. 250 million copies sold. 130 million more than Harry Potter and 50 more or million more than A Tale of Two Cities. And it's the second most bought piece of Christian literature of all time behind a little known book called The Bible. We actually, fun fact, have some copies of Pilgrim's Progress in the back in the bookstore. If you want to, you know, go ahead and jump into that journey. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress before, you need to read it. Like I said, it's cheesy, but it's about a journey. And I think it somewhat speaks to our uh, process as individuals. We love to watch the human journey. We love to, to see it and watch it. And this motif is actually found all throughout the Old Testament and really the scriptures as well. We look at characters like Abraham literally going on a journey. Joseph on a journey. Moses goes on a journey. The whole people of Israel go on a journey. Jesus, from from Galilee to the cross, he goes on a journey. It's all throughout the scriptures. Our life is a journey. Your life is a journey. My life is a journey. Janet Hagberg says this in her uh, book called The Critical Journey, which was used in Uh, Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Here's what she has to say about the idea of a journey. A journey involves process, action, movement, change, experiences, stops and starts, variety, humdrum, and surprises. For us, a journey implies more than a quick trip from point A to point B. It is more extended with the time and places between departure and final destination being important for their own sake. Whereas a trip focuses primarily on a destination, a journey has significance when seen as a whole. Journeys are dynamic. They're not static. There are side trips, returns to former sites, forays into the unknown. A journey cannot be repeated even if we try. And we've been invited on this journey, all of us. And Jesus, come follow me. Now, in college, it finally clicked with me that discipleship was actually a journey. And that changed everything for my formation. When I actually realized that I was invited into a lifelong journey what Eugene Peterson calls long obedience in the same direction. It was not just about any longer a static event of quote-unquote being saved. I've said this before in some side conversations, but if you asked any first century believer when they were saved, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. That is a modern Western evangelical idea. It's not rooted in the scriptures or in the ancient tradition of the church. It's actually, we we speak of being saved as past tense. But when you look at the word saved in the New Testament, almost every time it's future tense. Even Peter says that we grow up in our salvation. It is a journey that we enter into. And I realized it wasn't just about a static event, but a lifelong journey. It was about actually entering into this process 
of growing up in salvation, of walking towards maturity. Now, two things that are against us in the journey that we need to go ahead and lay out in front of us today. Two things. The first thing that's against us is a lack of self-awareness. Go ahead, write it down. Lack of self Unless you're totally self-aware, then I need to spend some time with you. Okay. Lack of self-awareness is a temptation, a.k.a. not knowing where we are on the path of change. We prayed a prayer, maybe, or we've attended church some, and we've read our Bible a little bit, uh, done some service projects. But we aren't much more aware than that. We're not really any more aware than that. We've just done some things. And self-awareness is key to our formation. It's key to understanding about who you are in regards to the process of formation. And the ancients knew about the importance of self-awareness. They knew about this. This is deeply important to our formation. Check out some of these uh, ancients and their thoughts on self-awareness. St. Augustine, here in the 4th century, prayed this. Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. In other words, I need to know myself so I can know you. Bernard of Clairvaux, without knowledge of self, we have no knowledge of God. Juliana of Norwich. We can never come to the full knowledge of God until we first clearly know our own soul. And even John Calvin, our wisdom in so far as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. See, Calvin was low-key a mystic. I'm just saying. We see the importance throughout history with the awareness of where we are and the awareness of ourselves. And when we are unaware, friends, we usually have a passive formation. And it's reactive. It's not intentional. Or we simply stagnate along the way or even regress. Or a modern phrase you hear some people say, uh, it's backsliding. I regressed or I backslid which is totally possible in the journey. As weird as it might sound, Jesus will not force you to change. He is not going to force you to change. He respects your choice and gives honor to your dignity as a human being with freedom. St. Augustine says this. He says, without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. This means... That our journey of formation requires participation. You have to participate in the journey. As Dallas Willard has said before, grace isn't opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. We've been taught, most of us growing up in churches, that grace is opposed to any sort of effort. And that's not true. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Jesus says, come follow me, which requires the people who are hearing this, the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, to actually put some effort in that response, to follow him. Repentance requires, guess what? Effort. Now, grace empowers us to participate, but it requires us consciously to participate in our own formation. So this is one thing that can be against all of us. And for most of us in this space, it might be a challenge 
in terms of just lack of self-awareness. Here's the second thing that's against us, and this is deeply important for all of us, is overestimating our maturity. Overestimating our maturity. Maturity in discipleship is not about age. Though it does require a lifetime, it is not about age. What does that mean? That means you could be 80 years old and as spiritually mature as a 25-year-old. Spiritual maturity does not equate with age. And our natural tendency, and I've been around enough young people especially, I think, honestly, who overestimate maturity. I talk to plenty of 18 to 20-year-olds, even people my own age and myself sometimes, where we think we are so mature. And then I begin to see your life script. And I'm like, not so fast, my friend. We're not as mature as we think that we are. We overestimate. We might use spiritual jargon or language, but that doesn't necessarily equate to maturity. And here's three things that maturity isn't that I want us to all be aware of. Maturity is not the same thing as gifting. Just because you're gifted and charismatic or have leadership skills does not mean you're mature. The second thing is passion or zeal. Just because you came in with a ton of energy and you're zealous and you're like, let's go, ah, that does not mean you're mature. And the third thing is knowledge. And I hit on this earlier. Just because you have tons of information, that you're a theologian in training, that you've read the Bible multiple times and you're 21 years old, that does not equate to maturity. That equates to knowledge. Primarily knowledge about, not knowledge of. So those are three things. Maturity is not necessarily gifting. It's not passion. It's not knowledge. So where we need guidance and the thrust behind why we are doing this teaching series is because most of us in our community, though we might be aware that we are on a journey of some sort, we don't exactly know where we are in our journey toward maturity. We're just kind of moseying through life, hoping and praying we're walking in the way of Jesus. That's most of us. And throughout church history, writers and thinkers have wrestled with this same idea of where am I in the journey of formation? And they've sought to provide a basic framework for gaining awareness of markers along the way of formation. It's kind of like a map, you might say. And this, this map is commonly referred to in the language of spiritual formation as stage theory. Okay, stage theory. Very similar to Jean Piaget's groundbreaking psychological work on the development or the four stages of cognitive development within children moving into teenage years into adulthood. Stage theory in the language of the ancient church is about development into Christ likeness. If you look into the realm of psychology, you see all different types of models of uh, transformation and stage development, whether it's Erickson or Piaget or James Fowler. You can look all these folks up. There are stages, and the ancient church has come up with a framework in a very similar manner, but it's mostly about our development into Christ's likeness. It can be traced back and can be seen first uh, in terms of stage language with the African church father Origen in the third century, so roughly 
1,800 years ago or so. In fact, Origen was deeply fascinated, and I was fascinated by this uh, thought, with the intended or unintended progression of development chronologically in the Old Testament wisdom literature. For instance, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon are in, chronolo- are in a row in the Old Testament. And if you look into the nature of those writings, there is a progression of wisdom. Moral behavior in Proverbs, there's an existential or a being development in Ecclesiastes and moves into this deep inner communion in Song of Solomon. And it shows a progression. And he was fascinated with this progression in the Old Testament. Stage theory continues on through time in thinkers like St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, uh, Thomas Aquinas, and then modern thinkers like Janet Hagberg, Dallas Willard, and Robert Mulholland. The most classic breakdown, though, uh, of ancient stage theory is called the three ways. The three ways. And this is really uh, used in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. These ways are called purgation, illumination, and union. Purgation, illumination, and union. And the idea is that you move through these three stages. Don't you love these words? Purgation, right? To be purged. (laughs) Illumination, to have an awareness of your uh, behavior and internal life and where you are. And then into union with God, or theosis is what uh, some of the Eastern Orthodox thinkers would say. Though this framework is helpful, it's a bit overly individualistic in my opinion. And it's very inward. But the whole journey must be both inward formation and outward, or else it's not holistic. We're not just trying to form you as an individual. That's just become self-help. And we don't want to do self-help. We want to become more like Jesus. So there's an inward component, and there's an outward component. So, as we begin to kind of wrap up our morning, a word of warning for all of you as we move into this teaching series. This will not be a traditional exegesis of a book of the Bible or expository preaching. If you're upset about that, you just got three months of it walking through Romans. The idea of stage theory is just that, a theory, not a doctrine, not dogma, not a theology. It's not even concretely biblical, though we did already see the numerous New Testament references to formation development as a parallel to biological development. And some might argue that Peter presents stages of character development in the first chapter of his second letter. But this teaching, my hope, will function as a helpful tool, but not just a concrete doctrine. I want it to be a helpful tool. I know many of you love the Enneagram. Oh, if I meet people, sometimes the very first like, conversation we have is, what Enneagram type are you? Right? Or we used to be obsessed with the Myers-Briggs. Anybody know Myers-Briggs? Yeah, like 80s, 90s, come on, MBTI, right? But now it's all about the Enneagram. And Enneagram is helpful. It's not uh, God. It's not absolute. But it's hopefully a tool. And my hope is that stage theory functions the same way. This will be a tool for you along the journey. That is the end goal. It's about ourselves into Christ's likeness by way of his spirit. Each week we will explore more in depth as well. uh, We'll explore five stages. So throughout the last few weeks, 
I have spent a ton of time in research, looking at my own life, synthesizing different models throughout ancient history of stage theory, even looking at characters in the New Testament and the Old Testament in their development, characters like Moses, characters like Peter, even characters like Paul, and looking at their kind of biographical journey. And through all of this research, I have kind of put together a five-stage model or five stages that we will walk through over the next few weeks. And each week we'll explore more in depth each of these stages, as well as what hinders you and I from moving forward into the next stage. That's, that's my hope, that we will have an awareness of things that might keep us stuck with where we are. And you might be like, I'm stuck now and I don't know why. We'll talk about it. Now keep in mind, this will make life seem linear, but it isn't. Life is not linear. My hope is that it functions more like a spiral upward rather than a straight line. A spiral upward rather than a straight line. And also, as I mentioned earlier, it is possible to stagnate. It is possible to stagnate or even regress along the way. So if Peter is urging us to grow up, it assumes it's possible that we do not or we might not. But I will say that I am convinced deeply convinced, and you'd have to convince me otherwise, that a mature follower of Jesus enters and builds off of each of these stages and in this order for the most part. I believe that each follower of Jesus walks through these stages and builds off of them in order for the most part. So now you're like, okay, what are the stages? I'm not going to go in depth because we need to wrap up and go eat some tacos and enjoy time together. Um, But here are the five stages I want to be able to show you guys that we're going to walk through together. The first stage of the journey is moments with God. Moments with God. The second stage of the journey is managing behavior. The third stage of the journey is mission with Jesus. The fourth stage of the journey is the movement inward. And the fifth stage of the journey is modeling the life of Jesus. Now, you notice the different colors? (laughs) I color-coded this bad boy, so (laughs) teachers love me, please. Each color hopefully represents a parallel to biological development. So the yellow would be a child. The blue would be a teenager. Green would be adult, and the red would be a mature adult. Now you do see a couple of other moments in the journey. The first moment that we hit is what's called the shift. This is where we shift from being self-centered to Jesus and others-centered. And then there's another moment where we begin to move inward. And usually it happens in the, in, uh, or right after the mission with Jesus stage and in this movement inward process called the wall. The wall. Now, let me also say this, because you're probably wondering all of a sudden now, you're like, where am I? That's the question. Where are you in the stages of the journey? But I want us to be aware of this. I believe, again, this is anecdotal, but about 75% of professing believers don't move past managing behavior. Most believers don't move past the shift from being self-centered to Jesus and other-centered. 
There's actually some data from Barna that shows that 51% of, of professing Christians have never heard of the Great Commission. 25% can't even recall what it actually is. And Barna calls this the Great Disconnect. So as you're thinking about where you are along the journey, keep this in mind that I think, and, and I could be wrong, it's just my own opinion, about 75% of believers don't move past the second stage. And I would, I would be a betting man to say about 90, 90%, 95% don't move past mission with Jesus or the movement inward or hitting the wall. Okay? And it's interesting, when you look at the Emmaus story, the Emmaus story seems to have some disciples who have hit the wall. They've gone through the stages, but they have hit the wall. And I want us to be able to talk about this. And I also realize most of you grew up in spaces, this is totally foreign, totally new. And I'm glad. I'm excited. You're a blank canvas. That's fantastic. I also want us to realize just as we kind of move into moments with God and managing behavior next week, that in this stage, especially moments with God, the thrust is your feelings. It's feeling-centric. It's emotion-centric, feeling God. It's experience-oriented. And then managing behavior is about moral behavior, moral change. Focus on what you can and can't do, so to speak. Okay? So I'm going to pray for us this morning. Bania, can you come on up? And as we wrap up our time together, we are going to have a kind of continuous move from this table of communion into our time of eating lunch together and having tacos and enjoying each other. And feel free to have this conversation, continue the conversation into our lunch together. That's why we're doing it. Um, So I'm going to pray for us. And after I finish praying, Anderson's going to come up and he's going to lead us in our liturgy this morning as we move to the table. Jesus, we are grateful. We are thankful for the invitation that you have given us to a journey. We are thankful for this community. We are thankful for the table, the table where we can reflect and remember that you didn't just do something in the past, but you're doing something in the present. And I pray now as we enter into this kind of new season as a church, that we would be a community that journeys together, that the invitation isn't to just individuals, but it's to a community. That Jesus, you invited a few disciples to come follow you. And my prayer is that all of us would recognize that we are on a journey together. We're not alone in the journey. That we are a collective community moving towards maturity and Christ-likeness. Thank you, God, for your presence among us. We thank you that you died, that you rose, and that you will come again.